Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we left off by finishing 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when we looked at the issue of the spiritual gifts and how they should operate in the church. And we're in chapter 15, verse 12 today, not because we're skipping verses 1 through 11, but because uh, on Easter Sunday, back in April, we skipped ahead to look at that beautiful text on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 1 through 15. So you can go back and catch that if you weren't here then or missed it. And today we're picking up in uh, the first part of chapter 15 in what is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. Chapter 15, I mean, every Every portion of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, every word, every sentence is inspired by God. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that's able to make us wise for salvation. And so the Scriptures are paramount for Christians. If you, by the way, if you're, if you're maybe listening by podcast and you are part of a church that does not make the scriptures and expositional preaching central, I encourage you in humility to go to your pastor and pray for your pastor and encourage him along those lines. And if that's just never going to happen, then maybe it might be the Lord encouraging you to find a church where the Bible is central. And, and so we believe that, but, but there are certain chapters and certain portions of the Bible that just stand like uh, Mount Everest above the other mountains of the Bible, and this is one of those chapters. And so, um, we're going to speak today about the resurrection of Jesus. It is one of the most important chapters about, without a doubt, the most important issue, in fact, in the world, and certainly in the Bible. And that is the real bodily, physical resurrection, or coming back from death to life, of Jesus, the perfect God-man. This truth is so weighty, this text is so important, that honestly it, it, it just makes me uh, tremble really to preach on these things and think on these things. Tremble because it's so important that I want to communicate it clearly, and tremble really in humility because I realize how much of your life and my life is spent not thinking about this most important of all truths. I mean, let's, let's be honest. We, we long for things. We know how to long for things. I mean, some of us in this room uh, long for, we're, we're more excited about the final round of the British Open this afternoon. Or we're hoping more that we won't miss any regular season pro football games. Or we spent more time preparing for the release of a final movie in a series of movies, and we stood in line maybe and stayed up. I mean, my bedtime is about 9.30. Stayed up until ungodly hours in the evening just to watch a show. I'm not beating you up. I'm just calling a spade a spade. I, don't you notice I included my two examples first? We tend to live life as if these 60 or 70 or 80 years that God may grant us are all that there is. And we subliminally 
subconsciously and sometimes even consciously come to the scriptures and come to Jesus as if Christianity is just some sort of set of beliefs that helps you navigate through life here and now better. And so we are just awash in self-absorbed pragmatism. And so we have to do work. We have to make a conscious decision to train our hearts and minds towards the reality of this most important and eternal of all truths, the fact that God became a man and he died and he came back to life. And so if you're a Christian here today, I want, I want, I want to stir our hearts afresh with the reality of the resurrection and all the implications that should flow from it. And if you are not a Christian here today, and I am certain that there are people in this room today who do not know Jesus. You may think you do, but you haven't truly trusted in him. Or you're aware of the fact that you're not a Christian and you're just here investigating Christianity. I I want you to know you're welcome to be here. We're very glad that you're here. But I also want to be clear about the fact that I sincerely hope that God in his kindness would give you the gift of repentance and faith so that you would turn away from self-trust and you would turn in faith towards Jesus. That's, that's all we care about today. And everything else in life, being a good husband, spending your money wisely, controlling your temper, all of that flows from this great truth of what God has done in Christ on the cross to save mankind through the resurrection. So let me pray, and then we'll read, and we'll work our way, start and stop, and start and stop through this text, because there's much to it. My, my plan is to draw out three overarching truths, and then to ask you one question, myself one question, at the end of this message. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, uh, uh, I'm just, as I mentioned, humbled. And really, uh, I tremble in light of the truth of this text. We need your help. I need your help. We need more than cognitive knowledge or human reasoning. We need the illumination and the power and the life and the breath of your Holy Spirit, which is here today with us, flowing through us. Lord, would you come and would you help me? And would you help my brothers and sisters in this room to stir our affections? and our confidence in Jesus and what he has done for us. And for my friends in this room who are not yet born again, who have not yet trusted in Jesus truly, would you help them? Would you give them the gift of life by believing in Jesus? I pray that you do these things for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read in verse 12. I've broken this up into three paragraphs uh, that, that I want us to work through. Verse 12, Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What's going on in the Corinthian church at that time is some of the Corinthian Christians are believing that Jesus came back from the dead, they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They're not denying that. But they were denying the resurrection of his followers. So what they were doing was 
they were in error in, in adopting this false doctrine that this life, these 70 or 80 years, or whatever the life expectancy was in Corinth at that time, were really all that there is to it. Now, maybe they had some sort of a mystical thought of an afterlife with a soul. Some of them certainly had that, but they denied the physical bodily resurrection of Christians. And now Paul is going to lay into them and refute their logic by saying that if you deny the reality of a bodily resurrection for Christians, your faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus sort of fails. And so if you're going to deny this, then you must deny the other. And then this paragraph is going to be his logic behind that. So he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see that logic there? He's saying, if you're saying that Christians who believed in Jesus that have died are not going to be someday resurrected, then you're also, by consequence, saying that Jesus was not truly resurrected. Verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised verse 17 and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep meaning those who were Christians that have died, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So I want you to see what Paul does here. I want you to follow his logic. Okay, so again, he's saying to the Corinthians who believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but who deny the bodily resurrection of Christians after him. He's saying that if you deny that we as believers in Jesus will be resurrected by God, not only in our hearts and our soul and our spirit, but that if you deny the bodily resurrection of Christians, then you're also, by consequence, denying, undermining the validity of your faith in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then he lays out seven different consequences of the consequence of their logic that if we're not raised, then Christ is not raised. And so there's seven different things. I want you to see that. If Christ has not been raised, I want you to look at these seven things just very quickly. He says in the first part of verse 14, then preaching is in vain. If Jesus didn't actually come back from the grave in a physical body, then what I'm doing here right now and what every other preacher of the gospel has ever done since Jesus rose from the grave is vanity. It's useless. It's futile. I want you to see Paul is hanging everything on the resurrection. Preaching is in vain. He says in the second half of 14 that faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't actually come back in the body, then faith, any faith that we might have in God or what he has done or in anything is vain. He even says, number three there in verse 15, that we are misrepresenting God. We're lying about God. It becomes sort of a, a, a folksy tale and nothing more. Christianity falls apart as a, 
as a lie if Jesus did not actually come back bodily from the grave. Number four there, in uh, verse 17, the first part, and this is huge, your faith is futile. It's, it's worthless. And then the second part, number five of verse 17, this is essential. If Jesus did not come back from the grave in bodily form, then Paul is making the claim that we are still in our sins, that there is no forgiveness of sins. This is going to be huge as we build on this. Paul is saying that if Jesus did not come back to life in reality, then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Old Testament that pointed toward Jesus, and everything else that follows after the Gospels in the New Testament is worthless in regards to affecting salvation. We are still in our sins if Jesus didn't come back in the flesh from the grave. These are, these are huge. He's not hedging his bets at all. He is, he is pinning, I want, here's what I want you to see. He is pinning everything in the Bible. He is pinning everything about the gospel. He's pinning Christianity itself on this one reality that Jesus has come back from the grave, not just as a sort of mystical spirit that can sort of walk through a wall or can be risen in the hearts and minds of the disciples or this great teacher whose teachings live on. He, he's not going there. He's not hedging that. Do you, see, do you see this? He's saying that everything rises and falls on whether or not Jesus has actually come back from the grave in the flesh. And if that hasn't happened, he says you can throw everything out. You can throw the baby and the bathwater out. We all need to go home because what we're doing here is a lie and foolish. And most importantly, we're, we're still, number five there, we're still in our sins. And then he says in verse six, the dead in Christ are those your uncle and grandma and great-grandpa and all you Corinthians that have relatives who are Christians that have died, they're, per- they're gone. They're perished. They're separated from God. There's no... There's no life. And then he makes this really sweeping statement. Caps off his argument in verse 19 where he says then, if Christ is not raised, if we've hoped in this life only, if we've hoped in his life on earth, and then we hope in that for just this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. I don't have time to go down this rabbit trail, and you know how I love rabbit trails. But that little verse right there should smash the prosperity gospel. That little verse right there smashes any false version version of Christianity, any false gospel that says that, that sort of presents Jesus as a sort of means to the end of a better life here and now, friends. Because what Paul is saying there is if you're hoping in Jesus just for the improvement of these 80 years, that you are to be above all people pitied. If Jesus is just another sort of belief system that you adopt to self-improve, then you have reduced the truth of God's saving grace and the display of his glory in the universe to a sort of self 
self-serving improvement method that ends when you die. And he says, if you're in that game, if you're caught in that cycle of health and wealth and Jesus as a ticket to something else, then you are to be pitied above all people. So Paul backs himself and Christianity and the whole message of the Bible into a very small and specific corner. I want you to see that. And that corner is, that glorious foundation is that God became man in the flesh and in the flesh lived a perfect life and in the flesh died a real agonizing, horrific death on the cross and rose in victory over sin and death in the flesh and now has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he daily makes intercession for his people. So here's, here's, here's point number one, and this is not rocket science, friends. This is, this is public school in Southern California where English is a second language level a theology right here, right? That's where I grew up. This is not, if you came into this church and you just have this sort of little insecurity that you don't understand everything that goes on in church, I'm with you, friends. I don't understand everything that goes on in church. But this is not one of those things that's hard to understand. Point number one is that salvation from sin and death, in parentheses there, I don't think I have that on the screen, salvation is only possible because of the resurrection. Okay, so the salvation of anybody that is saved, and not everybody is saved, and we'll read about that here in just a moment. Salvation, life eternal with God forever, is a salvation from something, actually, sin. A couple weeks ago, Don McKelvey on the 4th of July preached a beautiful and very helpful message on how we declare our independence from God, and that becomes sin and that we tend to minimize in our therapeutic culture sin. The problem is not less than optimal lives. The problem is sin. If you missed that a couple weeks ago, go pick it up. I believe it's on the information desk. But we are saved from sin and death and separation and God's wrath through not moral lives, not living better, but solely through trusting in what Jesus has done in his work on the cross, to die, to be buried, and to come back to life in the flesh. Okay, so that's, that's just the essence of the message of the gospel, that salvation from sin is only possible because of the resurrection. Now, whatever else you want to say about Christianity, and there's a lot of other things that you can say about it, there's a lot we can do. In fact, I intend to give the rest of my life to to plumbing the depths of this book and all of the implications that flow out of it from the gospel. In fact, that's what I'm going to do, uh, Lord willing, for the next 40 years. I'm 40 right now, and so I, and maybe the Lord will give me grace to keep preaching until I'm about 80 or so, and I've stated it on record. My hope for my future here on this earth is to spontaneously combust during my last sermon, Lord willing, at Cross Point Church, which would be awesome. And the next little guy in line, pastoral assistant or next associate, just come sweep up my ashes and pick up the sermon from where I left off and nobody really care because my life goal is to make much of Jesus die and be forgotten. Thank you, brother. I, yes. It was perfect timing, 
and I needed it. (laughs) But regardless of whatever else you want to say about Christianity and the gospel and the gospel-centered life, friends, we must start with this, that if Christ is not raised, we are still in our sins. That's the essence of the Bible. That's the heart of Christianity. Friends, we don't primarily need help or improvement or to dust ourselves off and to be better people. We primarily need salvation from sin and its consequence, which is death and separation from God forever. Friends, that is the heart. If you don't understand that, oh, friends, do you realize it is only because of God's kindness that somebody is speaking that to you even right now. If you've been tricked or lulled to sleep by a false presentation of what Christianity is, oh, friends, do you realize how kind and gracious God is to you right now to re-clarify and recalibrate so that you can understand the essence of what it means to be a Christian? And it is this, that God saves. He doesn't help. He primarily saves his people through the resurrected perfect life of his son who laid down his life and then came back to life in the flesh. You may ask, and this is a good question because I always love the skeptic because I think I'm a natural question. Why why then? I'm like, okay, Brad, I get you. I mean, I, I see the logic there that Paul establishes in verse 15 and I... I, I will concede that that is the point that the Bible is trying to make. But you may ask, why is Jesus' resurrection necessary for our salvation? I mean, couldn't have God done it another way? Well, I think we need to be honest with that question. And I, Yes, God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. He could have done whatever he wanted. But this is where we need to approach the Bible with a tremendous amount of humility. Because it seems clear from the scriptures, that the resurrection, doesn't seem clear, it is clear, that the resurrection is necessary for our salvation. This is what Paul writes in Romans 4.25. It says that he was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. So if there's no resurrection, there's no justification. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. We just read it in 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, we're still in our sins. So why would God do it that way? Jesus' resurrection does a few things. Let me just offer you a couple trajectories, a couple thoughts about why God has deemed it so to make the resurrection of Jesus necessary for salvation from sin. First, Jesus' resurrection vindicates his innocence and the acceptability of a sacrifice. So friends, we've got to understand that. See, Jesus didn't die for his sin. And so... The fact that he comes back to life proves his innocence over the sin or from the sin for which he died. You see, you've got to understand that Jesus is perfect. Unlike any other religious leader that has ever purported to have some way of enlightenment, Jesus is perfect. And so Jesus comes back from the dead because it validates his innocence. Innocence. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says that he was manifested in the flesh. In other words, he came in the flesh and he was vindicated by the Spirit. So Jesus' resurrection is the sort of divine stamp of approval of the perfection of his life. It proves, it validates, it vindicates that Jesus is perfect. That there's nothing in his death that he needed to die for himself for. It was completely a substitute. 
Also, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates God's approval and satisfaction of his work. Him coming back to dead is sort of God's stamp of satisfaction in what Jesus has done. It displays and confirms his power. This is so important. It displays and confirms his power over sin and death. Do you see that? I mean, it's one thing to die. It's one thing to throw yourself out in front of the train or to take the bullet. But it's another thing then to take that bullet back out of your chest that just killed you and throw it back at the person who shot you. That's another level of power. And and only God can do that. And so the resurrection becomes essential for the salvation of his people, not just because Jesus becomes an example of how we should lay down our lives, although that is an example, that is an aspect of Jesus' work, but primarily the resurrection becomes a display of his victory over sin and its consequence, death. Do you see that? So he hasn't just died for us. He has won the battle over our enemy through coming back to life in the very flesh that he laid down as a sacrifice. And then finally, before we move on here, the the life that we receive, the life that we then receive as believers in what Jesus has done It's a resurrected life. It's not a crucified life only. Do you see that? Then Jesus comes back from the grave and he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe in what he has done. And when they do that, he gives them life. And the life that he gives is not a temporary life that eventually dies. The life that he imparts then is a resurrected, eternal life. And so to become a Christian is not just to trust in Christ's life for these 80 years or his 33 years, but the life, the truth, the power that we receive in trusting in Jesus is eternal life because it's life that is alive. Do you see that? And you may ask, again, I just want to appease and encourage my skeptics here, you may ask, why did God even choose to do it this way? I say, you're saying, okay, Brad, I realize that the res- resurrection is essential, and now I even see that the resurrection is necessary according to Scripture, but you may ask, why did God choose to do it this way? Well, I think that's a valid, again, honest question, and I would direct you to one of the most important Scriptures, I believe, in the New Testament, and it's in Romans chapter 9. And let me just read it to you and comment briefly. And in Romans chapter 9, this verse is talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation in all things which is another issue that I'm not directly talking about today, but I think this gives us a picture of the motivation of God in all things. And this is what he says through Paul in Romans 9, verse 21. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen to this logic now. This logic smashes American self-centeredness. This logic smashes the pragmatism that causes people to write books that present Jesus as just a means to a better life here and now. This is what Paul writes and what God says through Paul. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, there's so much we could say about that verse, but let's just draw out this one principle here, friends, that God could do whatever he wanted to do to display his glory in the universe. He didn't have to allow sin to enter into his perfect creation. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. We need to admit that. But humbly, we need to acknowledge that the the way things are, are that way, Not because God was surprised by human sin and rebellion. Not because God is reacting to human sin and rebellion. But because God in his wise and mysterious and always good secret counsel has determined to allow sin so that in a display of his greatness, he might save people from that sin. Now, friends, that is a humbling truth, but when you begin to wrestle with that clearly biblical truth, you begin to line yourself up with the way things actually are. And what that does when you grab a hold of that human pride-smashing truth, it actually frees you to realize that everything exists for the glory of God. That goodness exists for the glory of God and that evil in some wise, mysterious way, even though God is not culpable for evil, God works all things together. As Logan read this morning from Ephesians 1 verse 11, he works all things together for the counsel of his will and for the display of his glory, friends. And most decisively, he works tremendous evil for his good in the resurrection of his son, whom Isaiah said prophetically centuries before that it was the will of God to crush him so that he might rise in a display of his greatness. Well, let's keep going. Verse 20. But in fact, now he turns on their faulty logic and he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that's just kind of a biblical way of saying that Christ is the first of those who will be resurrected sometime in the future. So he's the first of what will be many who have died to be resurrected. For as by a man, now listen to this logic, for as by a man came death, speaking about Adam, because we're all children of Adam, we are all spiritual descendants of our first parents, and through his sin... Death spread to all men and all sin. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So through one man comes sin and death and all of its consequences. And through one man, Jesus, comes resurrection and life eternal. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So you see this? There's two portals here. There's two passageways. One is Adam, and through that passageway or through that portal comes sin and death, which we all share in. Sin is universal. Everybody sins. Everybody's fallen. Everybody stands before God guilty. And now he's saying that salvation comes not for all, but for only those who have trusted in Christ, who are in Christ. Okay, so there's two portals. One is universal, and that's sin, and all of us share in that. 
and the other pathway is eternal life, resurrection, and that only comes through Jesus. And while this one passageway of sin is universal, this other passageway of resurrected life is not universal. Listen to Paul here. He says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So if we stopped right there and we didn't have the rest of the Bible, we may be thinking, oh, it's universal. Everybody dies in Adam because we're children of Adam, and then we're all made alive in Christ. But Paul narrows it down a little bit in verse 23. And then as we take the rest of the New Testament in view, we realize that salvation is not universal for everyone. It's only for those who trust in Jesus. And then he says in verse 23, listen, he goes there with that, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Who are those that belong to Christ? Those that belong to Christ are those who have turned away from their sin and who have trusted in what Jesus has done through his work on the cross. Okay, so the salvation is not everybody. So really what Paul is saying in verse 22 is that all who die come through Adam, which is all of us, but all who live eternally with God come through Jesus, which then we can glean from verse 23 is clearly not all of us. So friends, again, I return to this. Have you trusted in Christ? I mean, do you realize that the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to, is to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross? And then he continues, continues in verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So we're kind of in between this time when Jesus has resurrected and has established his victory over death and then this time when he will come again and destroy the remnants of our enemy, sin and death. Verse 25, For he must reign, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, as that verse is translated in English for us, it's a little kind of awkward sounding to us. But let me just summarize what that paragraph is saying. It's saying that Jesus has come in the flesh, died, resurrected, established and pronounced his victory over sin and death in the flesh through his resurrection. And now we are in this in-between time where for some wise, mysterious purpose, he is allowing death to continue, even though his head has been chopped off, allowing the defeated corpse of the enemy to sort of flop around and still cause damage before it ultimately and finally dies. And that will be when he comes back a second time to finally establish and consummate and finalize the victory that is already his. Okay, so, so here's what's happening. is Jesus, in the resurrection, think of this imagery here, has chopped off the head of the wolf, of the dragon, of the beast, 
at his resurrection. And he won his victory there. But the beast's arms and arrows are still flailing around, wreaking some havoc on his people in this time between when Jesus comes again to finally lay that beast who's decapitated by the resurrection and throw it away forever. And we are in that time between Jesus' inaugurated victory and his final and full consummation of his victory. And so point number two is that the resurrection then demonstrates God's sure and final triumph over every enemy, evil, sin, and death. The resurrection demonstrates God's sure and final triumph when Jesus will come again to finally triumph over every enemy, evil, sin, and death, which he did at the cross, which he will completely consummate in that time when he comes again. And so friends, this explains so much of life in this broken world. Do you realize that we're in this this sort of in-between time when Jesus' victory has been won and then this time still in the future, the then that Paul refers to, when Jesus will finally and fully bring about his complete and total victory. Not that he needs to do another thing, but when his full and final victory will be realized in its consuming way. So we're standing in between this time of tension between when God has won the victory and when the victory is consummated. And friends, don't you realize that explains a thousand different ills. That explains why there's still sickness. That explains why there's still divorce. That explains why there's still cancer. It explains why some young men and women in this room are going to be deployed shortly to be shot at by evil people. Do you realize we're in this time when God is still in his mercy allowing more people to come to him? And you see that we're in this time when even through evil and tragedy and and terrible sickness, God is still getting his glory by causing his people to not trust just in these 80 years, but to trust in life eternal. Friends, you've got to see this in a broken world. Do you see how God gets glory by even allowing evil to continue to some degree? Because what happens when God in his mercy allows things to continue to go unbroken, it causes his people to turn away from trust in this life. And it causes his people to long for the full and final life. And do you see how much praise and much glory goes to God through his people enduring tragedy and triumph? Again, tragic. You see, that's why the health and wealth gospel is so false because it teaches you to look inward here on just this life. And the very fact that God even still allows evil to be in this world is a sign of his grace. One, to bring more people to him and two, to in his kindness point people away from looking at just this life and longing for life eternal. And friends, when you grab a hold of that, friends, you can endure anything. You can endure anything. 
You, you, can, you can walk through sickness. You can walk through rebellious teenagers. You can walk through combat. You can, you can walk through a thousand broken things in this world because you know that this world is not all that there is. And God in his mysterious and wise counsel is allowing that to be so that he would receive much glory. Friends, seeing that is it's the essence of good biblical theology that the Bible is radically God-centered, not people-centered. And the very fact that God even endures with the brokenness is a sign of His grace and another opportunity for the display of His glory. When you get that, oh, you become, you become such a confident child of God so that when you get sick, when you're when there's some tragedy in life, you can, you can go to God, as Hebrews says, boldly in your time of need, knowing that God and his wise providence might be pleased to bring some answer in that moment, to heal you of some sickness, to cause some problem to be straightened out. But you also have the privilege as a child of God when you under that, understand that perspective, to know that when your prayer in this life doesn't get answered in that way, that you can posture yourself in an eternal way so that whether you are hungry or whether you are well-fed, either way, whatever the case, God can get the glory in your life. Friends, that is, that is just monumental and that is foreign to the American church because we reduce Jesus down to what he can do for us now. And so the resurrection demonstrates God's sure and final triumph over every evil enemy, sin and death. Let's continue and finish up with this last paragraph. Verse 29, which is a, a puzzling verse. Let me try and unpack it for you quickly. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? This verse has troubled commentators for years. It's kind of one of those scratch-your-head type of verses. What's Paul saying there? Evidently, in Corinth, there was this practice. This is the only time this is mentioned in the Bible. Evidently, Paul is responding to this sort of strange practice in the Corinthian church where people were occasionally baptized for the dead. Now, what does that mean? There's two different lines of thinking here that one, people were baptizing themselves because they had a relative who was a Christian and was now dead. And so they're thinking this person's with God. And so they're unwittingly, they're, they're falsely thinking that, oh, well, if I get baptized, then that will sort of maybe ensure that I get to see that person again. Okay. And so they're sort of using this water baptism as a sort of sort of manipulative tool to maybe get to see that person. Of course, that's false. Or what may be happening is, is that there's this line of thinking amongst the commentators that this verse is referring to people who had relatives who came to faith in Jesus and died before they could be water baptized. And so these now Christian friends of theirs or relatives are letting themselves be baptized as a sort of vicarious or substitute baptism for their dead great uncle or grandpa who was not able to be water baptized, which again is erroneous and wrong. So if you get, if you come to faith in Jesus and, and you get hit by a bus and die and you're not water baptized, you're going to heaven, friends. It's a, baptism does not save you. But there was these, obviously these wrong views in the church at that time. And Paul is not condoning that. I think if we had time to ask Paul, what would you mean in verse 29? In fact, I may do that someday when we're in heaven. Like, Paul, unpack verse 29 for me a little bit. I think what we would say what Paul would say to us is he's using their faulty logic of this strange thing called baptism for the dead to bolster his argument because he's saying to them, if you don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead, 
Why are you getting baptized for this crazy, strange logic for that thing called the resurrection of the dead? Do you get that? Okay, put 29 in your pocket and let's move on. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. And then he quotes a common line out of poetry of the day, bad company ruins good morals. So he's quoting one of their philosophers and using the strain of truth in that philosophical quote of the day as argumentation for them. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And so let me summarize what Paul is saying in this last paragraph here that we'll cover today. He's saying that the reality of the resurrection, and this is point number three, the reality of the resurrection should cause us to take life here now very seriously. So he's trying to get them to see this truth of what Jesus has done on the cross to wake them from this sort of sinful slumber that they're in. And he's saying if these things are true, if there is a life to come, then it should rouse us from our sort of self-centered slumber and it should cause us to think about how we're living here very clearly. And it should also do this. It should free us from the attachment we have to this life because Paul makes that argument. He says, look, I'm willing to die. Why would I go fight the beasts at Ephesus if I thought that these 80 years was all that there is to it? He's saying, I'm willing to die because I know that dying is not death. And he's also saying to them that how you live here in this life matters because there is a life to come. So don't keep on sinning, he says. Because the life that is to come matters. And eternal life with Jesus, with God, only comes through trusting in what God has done in Christ on the cross through the resurrection of Jesus and his full and final defeat of sin. So I end with this question. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Simply, do you believe in it? If the answer to that question is no, then friend, I want to say with every bit of clarity and love to serve you in truth that you are not yet a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I say yet because I think God in his kindness may very well be saving you even as we speak and giving you the gifts of repentance and faith so that you would turn from self-trust and doubt and logic and turn towards faith in Jesus. Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? No? You're not yet a Christian. I would love to talk to you more after service about believing in Jesus. Friends, I could, I could have taken this message another way and talked to you about evidences of Jesus' resurrection. And that's a fruitful and good thing for us to consider about how Jesus was... Uh, discovered the empty tomb was discovered by women which would have been a terrible way to propagate a myth in the first testament first century uh, culture women's testimony didn't mean anything in a court of law so if you're writing 
a story that's just a hopeful myth that you would never write down in the gospel accounts as the early followers of Jesus that the tomb was discovered by women. And then we just look at the changed lives of the disciples and we could look at early Jewish, non-Christian historic literature and we could look how even they attest to the resurrection. But friends, I'm not going to go down that path because ultimately this is, believing in the resurrection is an issue of faith and faith is a gift. It's not something you muster. Now we all have some measure of faith, but saving faith, believing faith, Faith that leads to eternal life is a gift from God. And so I, I'm, not, I'm not appealing to your logic. I'm appealing to God who is rich in mercy that he might save you today. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, friends, I'd love to dialogue with you about this. Secondly, do you believe in the resurrection? Is the answer to that question yes? And I'm encouraging you, if you believe in the resurrection, don't just let it be a sort of cognitive agreement with the fact of the resurrection. I mean, James says even the demons believe and tremble. I think it's possible to mentally assent to the reality of the resurrection but not truly be a Christian. Has this gripped your life? Has it, do you treasure this truth above all others? Do you see how everything hinges on the resurrection? Does this cause much confidence and love? Does it warm your heart? Does it bring you to tears to know that Jesus was crushed for you and me? Does that stir your heart? Or is your heart merely rational and cognitive and dead still? The resurrection and believing in it should embrace and be the all-encompassing truth of your life. And so Christian, if you've believed in the resurrection, do you realize, realize what the Bible says is an implication for that? Let me just read this verse in Romans as our benediction. Romans chapter 8, my favorite chapter in the Bible. Romans chapter 8. This is what... Paul writes, as a consequence for us who have believed in the resurrection and thus have life eternal in Jesus. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a rhetorical question. In other words, nothing. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I love the reality and the gritty nature of that verse. It's not saying that when you become a Christian, all of these things are going to fade away. It's saying that in the midst of that, you know that this life is not all that there is to it, but there's a life to come which makes us more than conquerors. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, parentheses, to include my own sin, to include my own failure, to include my own self-absorption, to include my own frailty, to include my ongoing battle against my own flesh, to include my fear of man, to include everything that might hinder us from trusting in Christ. 
nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this verse and the truth and the reality of the resurrection should make Christians the most otherworldly, bold people on the face of the earth. Do you believe in Jesus? Turn from trusting in yourself. Turn from trusting in a false, dead prophet. Turn from trusting and relying on a human system of morality or goodness. And stake everything, all your hopes, all your hopes for your marriage working out, all your hopes for your ability to fight against the sin that continually rears its head, all your hopes for your future, all your hopes for your children, stake everything, Christian. Stake everything, person who came into this room not yet a believer. Stake everything you have into this one all-consuming truth that Jesus died a perfect sinless, substitutionary death and that he rose again in the flesh in victory over sin and death and now calls you to turn away from yourself and turn and trust to him. Do it even now. Do it even now. Turn away from yourself, friend. Don't require perfection from yourself or your mind or your logic. Turn even away from your doubt and turn towards trust in Jesus, even now, and his real resurrection and victory over sin and death. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you'd take these words. And those that were from you, I pray that you'd cause them to stick fast to the hearts of these people that I love very much. Things that were off or wrong, I pray that you would, by your grace, cause them to fall to the ground. Lord, people are not saved by persuasive words. So I realize that my preaching is in vain not only if Christ has not been raised from the dead, but it's also vain if the thing that makes it effective is human reasoning. The only thing that will give these words life is your pleasure and your will. So for the Christian, would you stir our hearts with affection for Jesus? For my brother or sister who's in this room who is in the middle of a a hurricane of circumstances in their life. Would you help them by letting them glory in and take otherworldly confidence in the reality of the resurrection and all that that implies, all the power, all the life, all the hope, all the guarantee that is, that is in that truth. Would you lift their eyes to you and off of their situation? God, for my friend that's in this room who is, uh, they came in here not yet a believer of Jesus. Would you give them the gift of repentance so that they might turn away from looking at themselves or their sin or some false prophet 
some false system of self-help. And would you cause them to turn and trust towards Jesus alone who saves? Because it is Jesus alone who is alive. Every other religious leader, every other great man or woman that ever had any followers is dead. But Jesus is alive. So Lord, would you cause my brother or sister, my friend here today, to turn from trust in this world and turn in saving faith to Jesus for your glory and their joy. In Jesus' name, amen.